Well, please turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, John chapter 14. And we'll be reading a number of, of verses in this section of John. So we'll begin by reading John 14, verses 25 through 26, and then we'll jump down and, and read a, a couple verses from John 15 as well as from John 16. So beginning in John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. Again, these verses come in the context of Jesus' upper room discourse. So um, it's on the eve of his death and he's giving his final instructions to his disciples before he will go to the cross and then after the cross um, rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. And so he's giving his final instructions to his disciples. John chapter 14, verses 25 through 26. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now please turn over to John chapter 15, verses 26 through 27. John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Well, last of all, turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and we'll be reading the second half of verse 4 through verse 15. So John chapter 16, beginning in in verse 4b through verse 15. Jesus continues and says, I did not say these these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word. Oh, uh, thanks be to God. Excuse me. Um, well, please turn also in your order of worship to the confessional reading. Uh, this morning, we will be confessing together Article 11 of the Belgic Confession. Article 11. And with this article, we will be concluding our consideration of the Trinity.
Well, what do you believe about the Holy Spirit? We believe and confess also that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but only proceeding from the two of them. In regard to order, he is the third person of the Trinity, of one and the same essence and majesty and glory with the Father and the Son. He is true and eternal God, as the Holy Scripture teaches us. Well, boys and girls, uh, according to that first article, what are we called to do with our hearts and mouths? What are we called? Yes. Believe and confess. Believe and confess. Very good. We are to believe with our hearts and confess with our mouths. And according to that same article, what is God? There are those three S words. What is God? Lillian? Yes, very good. Single, simple, and spiritual. He's a single and simple and spiritual being. Well, there are two ways in which we come to know of God. What are those two means? Noel? Yes, good. Creation and scripture. Uh, creation and scripture. Uh, the Belgian Confession then transitioned to consider scripture. What is scripture? And there are three descriptors, three attributes of scripture. So what is scripture according to to the Belgic Confession. Violet? Good. Authoritative, sufficient, and inspired. What is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? It's a little bit more difficult. What is the Trinity? Annabelle? Yes. One God in three distinct persons. One God in three distinct persons. So last week, we considered who Jesus is, who Jesus is in his divine nature. And Jesus is referred to as the eternally begotten Son of the Father. And now today, we're going to consider, uh, continue our consideration of the Trinity, where we're going to be focusing upon this question of who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, there's a common stereotype today that Pentecostals or even uh, broad evangelicals, they have a high view of the Holy Spirit because they embrace the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. Tongues, healings, prophecies. Uh, they even give a, um, uh, they emphasize more the, the inward feelings and experiences of, of the individual Christian. Well, we historic confessional Protestants have a very low view of the Holy Spirit. We are the so-called frozen chosen. Now, don't let the brevity of Article 11 fool you into thinking that the Belgic Confession is affirming this common stereotype. We do not have a low view of the Spirit. We actually have a very high and esteemed view of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, John Calvin has oftentimes been referred to as a theologian of the Holy Spirit because of the prominent place in which the Holy Spirit had in his theology. And so today I'd like us to consider our high and esteemed view of the Holy Spirit by reflecting upon how the Holy Spirit is God, 
the, the, um, how the Holy Spirit is a distinct member of the Trinity. And then last of all, how the Holy Spirit is given to us. So the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a distinct member of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is given to us. So the Holy Spirit is God. We see throughout Scripture, Scripture attributing divine attributes and names to the Holy Spirit, which tell us that the Holy Spirit is really and truly and fully God. For instance, in Acts chapter 5, which is the narrative about Ananias and Sapphira, Peter says to Ananias, Ananias, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And then a few verses later, Peter continues and says, Ananias, you did not lie to man, you lied to God. According to the apostle, lying to the Holy Spirit is akin to lying to God. The Holy Spirit is God. Furthermore, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, the author reminds us that Jesus offered himself on the cross through the eternal spirit. Eternality is a divine attribute. You and I are not eternal beings. We're everlasting beings, but we are not eternal beings because we exist within the category of time. Only God exists outside the category of time, and thus only God is an eternal being, one who has no beginning and no end, and thus the Holy Spirit is eternal, which means that he is really, truly, and fully God. Now, in the Nicene Creed, you may have noticed that we confess that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. What we mean when we confess these words is that the Holy Spirit is just as much Lord, which is a divine title, as the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is God. And so when we refer to the Holy Spirit as the third person or the third member of the Trinity, the Spirit is not third in rank, but third in order. The Holy Spirit is truly God. We confess this in response to subordinationism, which is one of those heresies that I mentioned last week, which essentially posits that the Son and the Holy Spirit are, are, are something less than the Father. And so we confess that, no, the Holy Spirit is God, really, truly, and fully God. Well, the Holy Spirit also is a distinct member of the Trinity. And we confess this point in response to modalism, that other heresy that I mentioned last week, which essentially asserts that God is fundamentally one God, and he's not three eternally distinct persons. Rather, the persons of the Godhead are merely different masks that the one God puts on. And so we confess, uh, contrastly, that no, God, or the Holy Spirit really is a distinct member of the Trinity. Now, what is distinctive about the Holy Spirit? Well, he eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father does not eternally proceed. The Son does not eternally proceed. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is what is distinctive about the third person of the Trinity. Now, it's important to distinguish between the Trinity in history and the Trinity in eternity. So let's take the Son, for example. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. But Jesus also was historically begotten in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So Jesus is both eternally begotten and historically begotten. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit historically proceeded from the Father and the Son at Pentecost. Now the historical relations between the members of the Trinity reveal to us the eternal relations between the members of the Trinity. So the historical relations between the members of the Trinity reveal to us the eternal relations between the members of the Trinity. Meaning, Christmas morning reveals to us how Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father, just as Pentecost reveals to us that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. The historical relations reveal to us the eternal relations between the members of the Trinity. Articles 8 through 11 then have been focusing not so much on the historical relations of the Trinity, but they've been focusing on the eternal relations of the Trinity. Now, where do we see this in Scripture? Where do we see the Bible referring to the Holy Spirit as the one who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son? Well, we see that this doctrine is established, established largely from John's Gospel in those verses that we recently read. So, remember what we read in, in John 14, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says that he will send, or Jesus says that the Father will send the Spirit in his name. The Father will send the Spirit in his name. Then, just one chapter later, in chapter 15, verses 26 through 27, Jesus says that he will send the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. He will send the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. And then, last of all, in John 16, Jesus speaks about how it is actually to the disciples' advantage that he leaves, that he ascends into heaven because it's only if he ascends into heaven the Spirit will be poured out. And then John 16, he again reiterates this fact that he will send the Spirit, the Helper, to his disciples. And so we see here in these verses that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, Jesus here is referencing Pentecost. He's referencing what's going to happen uh, on Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out upon the church. And so Jesus is referencing the historical procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. However, as I just mentioned, this historical procession reveals to us the eternal procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. Which is why we confess, both in the Belgian Confession and the Nicene Creed, that the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, the original composition of, or the original version of the Nicene Creed did not include this phrase, and the Son. The original version of the Creed, which was written in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, and then finished in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, the original version of the Creed only said that the Spirit eternally proceeded from the Father. It didn't include that extra phrase, and the Son. That extra phrase was actually added in the ensuing centuries by individual Western churches. And this addition to the Creed angered the Eastern churches. Now remember, there's this one Christian church at this time. And so 
some individual churches in the West added this phrase, and the Son, to the Nicene Creed. And this angered many of the churches in the East for two primary reasons. One, they didn't agree with this addition theologically. They didn't think that this was the best way to articulate our biblical Catholic Trinitarian faith. And second, they didn't think that these churches in the West had the authority to unilaterally change the creed. If they wanted to change the creed, you need to call a universal church council and debate and discuss these things and then submit to the mind of the body. But the Western churches didn't do this. They, they just changed the creed without the input of the Eastern church. Well, this issue, along with several other issues, led to what has been referred to as the Great Schism of 1054, where the Pope, the head of the Western church, excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople, the leader of the Eastern Church, and the Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated the Pope. And so from 10 to 54 onward, there are now two Christian churches who don't have fellowship with one another. You have in the West, Roman Catholicism, and in the East, Eastern Orthodoxy. Now about 500 years later is the Reformation. And the Reformation is a movement that really only existed in the Western Church, and consequently, the reformers inherited the Western version of the Nicene Creed. However, the reformers didn't just adopt the Western version out of mere tradition. They believed that it was the more biblical option because of what we just read in John's Gospel. Based on what Jesus says in John's Gospel, it seems that the, the Spirit is presented as, as someone who proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Now, what's sort of the, the practical implications of this? Well, some have said that because the Eastern Church did not add this extra phrase, and the Son, they tend to be a bit more mystical in their experience of the Christian faith and tend to emphasize the, the Spirit working apart from means and apart from the work of Christ. While in the West, especially in the Reformational tradition, we see a very intimate connection between the work of the Spirit and the Son, uh, so that the work of the Spirit, or the Spirit's primary job, is to focus our attention upon Christ and His work. And it's at this point that I want to turn our consideration to, that the, the Spirit's main job is to focus our consideration upon Christ. And so the Spirit is given to us. The Spirit is given to us in time and space and history. The Spirit is poured down upon the church at Pentecost. Now, the Spirit is given to us, but for what purpose? The Spirit is given to us for what purpose? Well, the Spirit is given to us to focus our attention upon Christ. J.I. Packer is a great illustration. The, uh, the late J.I. Packer is a great illustration about the work of the Spirit in this age. He compares the work of the Spirit to, to floodlights or stadium lights. So let's say you go to a a Washington Huskies football game, and it's a night game, and the stadium lights don't work. Well, you're, you're going to leave, the game's probably going to cancel, and you're going to leave the game complaining about the lights. The lights don't work. But if you go to the game and the, the stadium lights work, you're not, you're not even, you're even going to think about the lights. All you're going to talk about is the game. And when so it is with the Spirit. When the Spirit's doing his job, he fades into the background and causes the attention to be placed upon Christ, the one for whom he is illuminating. And so when the Spirit's at work, all the attention, all the glory goes to Christ. 
and he fades into the background. This is why Jesus refers to the Spirit proceeding from the Father. This is why Jesus talks about that, uh, how he will send the Spirit. This is why Jesus says the Father will send the Spirit in his name. This is why Jesus says that the Spirit's job is to glorify Christ. This is why Jesus says that the Spirit's job is to bring to remembrance in his, in his disciples' minds all of the things that Jesus taught. This is why Paul refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit's main job is to focus our attention upon Christ. In that sense, he's, he's like floodlights or spotlights or stadium lights. Now, when it, when it comes to what I mentioned earlier, um, the difference between historic confessional Protestant traditions and, and Pentecostalism, or those who embrace the charismatic gifts. The difference between these traditions lies here. Many Pentecostal traditions believe and assert that the Spirit's job is to focus his attention upon himself, or focus our attention upon himself, while the Reformed tradition believes in light of what what Jesus says here in John and what Paul says in the epistles, that the Spirit's job is not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to Christ. And that really is one of the primary differences between uh, charismatic traditions and confessionally reformed traditions. It's a difference over our view of the Spirit's job in this age. Is the Spirit given to us to draw attention to himself? Or is the Spirit given to us to act like a spotlight, shining the light upon Christ so that he might be glorified in our midst? And so who is the Holy Spirit? Well, we see that the Holy Spirit is God. We see that the Holy Spirit is a distinct member of the Trinity. He eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And we see the Spirit has been given to us in order to focus our attention upon the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.